Welcome back to part two of the Hennessy Falls podcast, proudly presented by Aloha Surf Manly. 2013 was your best year on tour, Ots. I got to hang out with you at a couple of events during the year, and it really felt like you were building into something special. You were surfing really strong, and all those flip of the coin results seemed to be going your way. It really started to come together after Chopes. I can't remember if that was the year I had a crazy blowout at the judges at Bells. One of the years, Julian beat me. Yep. And I waited to the end of the day. I just couldn't resist. And I went down and slammed the door in the judging tower. I don't know if they'll remember it. I remember it. Yeah, Richie Porter remembers it. <laughs> and I blew up so bad at the end of the day. I just went, I'm either going to make every heat from now on or never again. But I just had to make a point and I made them watch footage and, you know, I can't keep losing by point something to these guys like i know i probably lose a bit more than i win to them but when it's this close it can't be every time you know like how am i losing every time by under half a point and they get the nod so i but i said it far worse words than that <laughs> i went off my head and i remember walking back up the hill and just said to my partner at the time sarah i said i'm either going to win or lose from now on i don't know what's going to happen i end up having the best year but i think i just got it it wasn't so much them giving me wins i just put a good year together i had really good boards i remember i was pretty comfy i knew i was having a baby the following year um all these things came together and and i just had confidence and i had this great board i picked up in trestles when i first got there made from mike andrews from channel islands in in america and that board went all the way through to hawaii it was just this little short board, but I could ride it anywhere. And that was when I won the comp. I had a great run, Trestles, France, and then won the comp in Europe. And um, it was just a culmination of everything, I think, that, that kind of 2013 year. But then I blew my knee out. I was looking to go really well and try and get higher than uh, where I was at the time. I think I was seventh. And um, I did my MCL right at the first day in Hawaii and this big um, maxed out beach break. And, that, and I had a knee brace and I didn't do very well at pipe, so... Still got ninth. Yeah, that was, I can't remember how it worked. I think I only made one or two heats. But, yeah, it was a great year. You know, you know, that was my best year. I was 34 years old, which was kind of weird. And let's talk about that win and the motion that went with that win. Um, did you feel after you left France that, you know, this was your time to shine? Did you feel like a win was coming? Yeah, I told, I told my mate at home. I said, you better oh, have, a, right. have a bet. Why didn't you tell me this? I said, you better bet on me because I'm going to win a comp and it's coming soon. I promise you, I only put a couple of bets on and end up winning. I think he won 10 grand that, that that particular comp. I was 100 to 1 to win and I said, I'm going to win one. And he put 100 bucks on me and I won it. So, yeah, that was that was good for him. A big party in Tafra that night. I think he spent two grand on the party. But, um, yeah, I was just, I could feel it coming, a win. I, I got close at Tahiti. I felt like I was on a roll in France with the conditions and Joel got me again there, I remember. One I probably thought I won too. He got me with a couple of cutbacks. But then then definitely I felt good. I beat Joel in, in France too. He was filthy. Um, he was going for the world title. I knocked him out of the world title race, which was a shame for him. I didn't want to do that, but I wanted to win the comp. And then I even did it to Mick as well. So You've had a couple like that, haven't you? Uh, um, yeah. Where you've decided... The world title, haven't you had two? Yeah, I mean, I was at the at the pointy end of the decision, but it's a big year, so I'm not the only person. But, yeah, definitely, like, you know, Mick Mick was definitely could have won the world title that day and I beat him and he didn't win it. He went on to win it in Hawaii the next month. But um, Joel, 
was in the in the in the race and if he had beaten me he was still alive but i actually knocked him out of the, the title race but i mean it's a big it's a long year i'm not going to take the take the blame for for him you know it's a big year leading up to it just in particular heats the outcomes near the end of the year someone's going to be doing it i happen to have a few good heats at the end of the year i mean i beat kelly in mixed first world title year my first year which was weird but you know that was near the end of the year and a lot of stuff had happened leading up to that so i was just there at the time when it happened and that win what did that do talk us through that win and that day how you know how did you feel that day oh it was the year i've just felt the most confident i'd ever felt on tour um you get to a point where you know you're safe to qualify so you get a little bit more confidence as a lot of the guys that kind of had similar careers to me you, until you kind of can do the mass in your head that you're safe you're never really you know calm but i'd had a really good early part to the year so i knew i was well and truly safe in requalification and then it just led into to that day and yeah i love portugal i've been going there for a long time i'd always had a result at that wave a lot of the time i love that beach break like i said it was the kind of conditions I grew up surfing down home in Tarfran and in Manly when it was big. So all the all those kind of things come into your mind on a day like that. And, yeah, it just happened to go my way in every every sense of the word. You know, you basically did it for your pop that day, didn't you? You were very emotional in, in your post-heat interviews and stuff like that. How much did that mean for you to be able to do that for your pop and your family and everyone, all your mates and stuff? Yeah, my, my grandfather was a big part of my life when I grew up in Tafra and he um, passed away before I qualified in 2006. So I was having a good year and then he got really sick and I was in France and he passed away while I was there and I couldn't even go home and I was freaked out. I ended up getting a good result though in the contest. That was what set me up for qualification was the first ever prime. I remember Dayan beat me in the quarterfinals, which was pretty funny and it was a really huge event, major. It was just a major event for the whole year. Whoever did well there was pretty much in a really good position to qualify. Anyway, he passed away that that event while I was still in France. And he was one of my bigger fans and, you know, he never saw me qualify. So, you know, um, to win an event and dedicate to him was great, great feeling. Yeah, I saw an interview with, uh, with TB not that long ago and, and he said, you know, he spoke about how hard it was to win on tour and the caliber of crew who never actually got to do that and went through their whole win, their whole career without a win. How does that sit with you now? You're retired. Is that a special feeling? Know that you you did that? Yeah, it feels good, but it also I did 110 events, I think, or something like that, and I won one. It's not a good ratio <laughs> when you think about it. You know, 10 events, 10 years, and then some years there's 11. So the maths is there. It's 100 events and or more. <laughs> And I won one, so it's not not the best. But yeah, like you say, guys I know that should have definitely won comps. Phil McDonald's one, one of my good buddies from the South Coast. He kind of led the way for me, being from the South Coast. He never got to win one. He should have. He won. He definitely got a couple of seconds where he, he got probably should have won. Yeah, I can't remember how. You know, he got. The, the weirdest stat with Macker is that he his first ever victory, either QS or anything, was my one star at narrabeen he beat hog in the final he actually said it in his post seat like interview and i i was like standing 10 like 10 foot away and i went no and i had to go and ask this i've never won that's so that's funny. crazy how how the sport actually how it happens yeah there's guys um, that didn't win it's unbelievable and there's guys that just win that many comps but i surfed through an era where 
I don't care what anyone says. It was the hardest competition ever at the pointy end of a comp. Kelly, Andy, Joel, Mick, Taj, then throw in some other ferocious um, competitors. They were the best Bobby surfers. At his peak. They were the best surfers in the world at the time. They'd make a better video part than anyone, and they were the best competitors in the world. So that combination is just yeah, how you meant to win. <laughs> it's just um, a hard thing to do. And you always, towards the end of the comp, quarters or semis onwards are going to run into one of those guys in absolute form. So they shared most of the wins that I can remember bar a couple of guys for like five or six years while I was on tour, Um, those kind of five or six guys. So, yeah, you know, Geordie and Dane came on to the scene. Julian came on to the scene um, midway through my career. They were probably regarded as the best surfers in the world at the time by then, but they weren't the best competitors, and that's proven. Like, they don't have a world title yet. Um, And they just didn't have what Mick and Taj and those guys got competitively. They didn't, they don't have, they still don't have it. Like, what those guys had going at the time was, I feel like, unparalleled to be easily the best surfers in the world and the best competitors. It's just so hard to deal with as as another competitor. (laughs) That last year on tour... I know now that that last year on tour was pretty tough for you mentally. You were slightly cooked. You were still training, but and and I felt you had a lot to offer. But you, I know now because I've spoken to you about it. But you, your heart just wasn't in it. You were ready to, uh, you know, to change yeah, your mean, life up. Is that correct? Yeah, you get to a point where, I mean, how you get sick of surfing as a job, I don't know. But it happens. It happens to everyone eventually. You're worn out from travel, and you just have young guys that come on that feel like I did back when I first got there. And I remember talking to Mick Lowe and he was that over it too and he'd been on there for 10 years and I was like, how can this guy be so off it? But I fully got to his point. I was like, I understand now how he felt. There's young guys come on, they're rude and they're ruthless and uh, they think they think the world revolves around them and you go surfing around the world in these really cool locations you've got to surf with pests before you go and have a heat i couldn't get over it i'd take it out in a heat and lose i'd be that angry about a free surf you know that was just my personality i just thought yeah i don't blame anyone but i just was sick of going to cool locations and surfing with wankers <laughs> and that's what was happening it would just that just went over into my heats and then i just didn't train and and i my whole career i was pretty adamant that I had to train flat out to win and I did do that for a long time and that last year I just didn't care and didn't do it and it proved I lost, missed out by a few heats. <laughs> did you get to finish on your own terms? Did yeah. you feel that? Yeah, I, you, well, yeah, I would have rather just keep going for a few years. Well, I don't even know. Would I, would yeah, I not? Yeah, that's the question I, I was really going to ask you. If um, you requiled that year. Yeah, I would have surfed again because it's money. It's like, you know, you don't know what happens in the off season. You get a reboot. I was definitely trying. That's why I didn't announce any kind of retirement. I didn't want any big chair up the beach like all the other guys <laughs> searched for. I just didn't quite know what I wanted to do, you know. I was still sponsored for two more years, so I was definitely going to be a surfer. Whether I, you announce a big, I'm retired, I'm retired from competition, and then you go and do a couple of comps, which I, I planned on doing because I've had a young young um, couple of guys on the reef team that I would go and hang out with and film and, They'd do comps, so I was always going to go and do Newcastle or something like that, the Manly comp. I didn't announce a big retirement. It was either I was going to make it 
or I wasn't and I might do some comps or I might not. I just didn't quite know at the time. <laughs> you talked about those young guys who came onto the scene with a bit of that attitude and fire in the belly. It looked like Gabby and others rattled a few cages. It felt like a change in the guard. But it also felt like those older guys still wanted respect. Would that be correct? You know, I think someone like Gabby, um, I don't know the details, but sounds like from what I've heard, he was pretty well protected at his home beach for a long time and got to do whatever he wanted. And you bring that attitude on tour, which he did at the start. And I remember guys like Mick and that talking to him, but they're just young. They don't, you know, Gabby's fine now. He grew up, you know, he's so young and wants it so bad and, you definitely when you're young you probably don't know how to act around the older guys and older guys always have preached demanding respect for years so if you've grown up not really having to give respect how you meant to all of a sudden just change you get to a big environment like that so they were never going to be like that um yeah but you know some of the you know the brazilian guys you mentioned Sometimes they have a bad rap. There's some Aussie guys and some American guys that are just the worst guys ever to surf with as well. <laughs> you know, I've probably been a wanker in the surf and there's guys out there going, how's this guy? He was a wanker this day at this beach. And when you're a surfer, you think you're entitled a bit, especially when you're a pro surfer. And any of the pro surfers who say they were never like that, they're full of shit because <laughs> a lot of pro surfers or all pro surfers think they're rock stars at some stage in their life. And you've... I've gone out and ruined people's surfs. I was t- talking to Diane about it yesterday at breakfast. Like, we used to huddle out in a pack and and smoke guys, smoke guys surfs. Like, we'd just be rude and take all the waves, and it's the wrong attitude. But at the time, you'd think you'd rip in, so you don't know any different. Okay, so talk about some other stuff that people might not know about you. You're very spiritual. You've ever since I've known you, you've always meditated, and. Um, and you've spent a lot of time, even before you're on tour, I remember you going to India. How important was that? And talk us through what was the process of you getting involved in your spirituality? Um, my dad's always been a bit of a guru. That's his nickname. He likes meditating and all things kind of Ayurvedic. And he just encouraged me to, he taught me to meditate. Well, he took me to Melbourne to learn how to meditate when I was 15. Never really did anything with it. I thought it was stupid till I was probably 18 or 19 I did it and then eventually I worked out it's a pretty handy tool to have in everyday life let alone being a competitor so I started practicing way more transcendental meditation throughout my career and I would notice I'd be on a way better level when I was doing it than when I wasn't but I still lapsed into not doing it and then you know humans have got a funny way of kind of enjoying a bit of sadness or something you, you you soon work that out through your life for some reason it feels good every now and again to feel down and that was I'm no different you know sometimes you just get I don't know it's a weird way to explain it but I'm sure people um, understand um, it's almost a comfortable for a month or two to feel shit for some reason and you kind of everything sucks kind of frame of mind but definitely meditation doesn't let you get there it's a really handy tool to um to overcome those sort of feelings that you might get um so yeah it was a it was a great thing i went and did um two lots of what's it called again punch karma punch karma that's it yeah and that's pretty pretty hardcore kind of mind and body detoxification um 
a lot of massage and some weird oils go up your nose and some weird oils go up your dot <laughs> colonics and uh but it, it really helped i, I kind of got back on track the two times i did did those throughout the year I, I pulled my year back together and and would qualify they were kind of on downward years at the start where i was going pretty crap so i'd go to india for seven or ten days and i did that twice that was really good um probably a lot different i mean some guys keep their cards close to their chest and you wouldn't know like someone like kelly you wouldn't know what he's done behind the scenes he probably doesn't tell everyone you know um i'm a bit more open about anything really but he might have had some secret tool that he did a couple of times a year that no one's ever going to know or we didn't know about that gave him longevity and a good frame of mind for pro surfing and um yeah so that was just an alternative way to to keep track for me and pull pull myself together you talk about your dad slim um the legend that he is um he's his unique character, what what kind of, um, you know, what influences he had on, you know, your overall life and, and how you think about things in life? Uh, well, he, he has a love for surfing like no one I've seen. He was always real vocal about anything to do with surfing from a very, from when I was young. Yeah, he was passionate. I had to, I couldn't let him travel with me. He was too intense. So he got like half of the first year or a couple of events in and never really came again. But he was always behind the scenes helping me out. Um, I would always ring him whenever there was a time of need and he was there and I still enjoy surfing with him. He doesn't surf as much now, but he's still getting out there. He's 66 or something like that, somewhere around that age and still surfing, still loves it, still vocal about Brazilian airs and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Not the judging fan, and the bloody billabongs and all that sort of thing. He loves a rant. So he always had something to say but he was he was a great dad to grow up um under you know let me have a lot of freedom but also had some pretty strict guidelines that if i blew it he wouldn't drive me around and it was a great way to, to grow up i remember when you were 18 we're having dinner one night and he looks at me and he goes he's the chosen one <laughs> it made me laugh he goes i'm telling you he's on <laughs> that was yeah. when you were like 18 i was like mate he looks 10. Yeah. He's yeah, such he a legend. Always, he always believed in you, yeah, He always said that to everyone and a lot of people laugh. I've had people come up to me within the last five years and just go, there's no way I thought you would ever do what you did. And they, Dad, I mean, they said it to Dad. It's a known thing. So, yeah, it's good to prove him right, I guess. He had a lot of faith in me and I got there, which was a really cool thing. Now, you spent a lot of time on tour. Who was the sort of weirdest cats and, and the funniest guys you'd travel with on tour? Who was strange? Um, no one's really strange. I travelled with Luke Stedman for a long time. He had some quirky things that he loved to do. He'd love to never travel with money. He just <laughs> had a credit card. So he'd always, everyone would throw in at the end of the night for the bill and he'd pay on his credit card and he probably profited every dinner we ever had. That was one thing where he'd stand up and go, can you take care of this? And he'd be asleep in the room before he even got back. Tommy would vouch for that one. It was pretty funny. Um, you know, oh, everyone had something, something weird. Dan loved chocolate. <laughs> I remember in Brazil, he'd have a chocolate brownie for breakfast. Cho no, a chocolate cake for breakfast, a chocolate steak. They used to do this chocolate steak. He'd have it for dinner and then a chocolate brownie for dessert. <laughs> but, um, oh, I mean, they're just silly little things. Yeah, everyone, everyone, I mean, I had the meditation. Everyone thought I was as weird as it gets. And Bemrose and that used to throw firecrackers at me when I'd be meditating. And I'd, I tried to stab him one night, like a psychopath. 
<laughs> when you're meditating. Yeah, so that's the complete yeah, yin and yang. Threw a firecracker under the door while I was meditating. It's the funniest moment of his life. I nearly died. <laughs> and um, I think that was the final straw. Actually, I never travelled with him again on the QS. <laughs> but um, yeah, everyone has some kind of weird thing they like to do or don't do. And yeah, Luke Munro hates farting. I used to fart on him as much as I could. Like he just... He was, I used to nickname him Delicate. He just hated it. And Sue doesn't like farts, honestly. But he couldn't stand it. <laughs> I wanted to touch on the endless travelling and effects it had on you on tour. Former head judge Richie Porter spoke to me this morning about your career saying, you know, he loved the fact that you would blow up and there was many times where you storm the tower, blow up at Ratso. But overall, he said, as a competitive surfer, you were incredible. He was part of that crew that was on that famous horror ride back from Brazil. Yeah, well, Wilco, Talk us through Wilco that. was paro and he was asleep. I don't even know if he knew what happened. Because he'd won the comp in Brazil and I'd got second in the final. So we were, the three of us were leaving at the same time because we were kind of there on the last day. And we had some turbulence over, um, it was over the Andes Mountains between Brazil and Chile. And... Um, we were up the very back, the three of us sitting together, and Richie was further up the plane. And to this day, I'm still adamant the plane did a big tail drop, and Richie confirmed it. He said he looked down the plane, and I looked up the plane. So we were falling out of the sky. And um, it just was this crazy turbulence that got worse and worse, and I tried to meditate until I pretty much... This other Portuguese or Brazilian dude just started screaming at the top of his lungs, and then the whole plane was screaming, and a chick flew up and hit the roof and split her head open and everyone's bags jumped like three or four seats around the plane. And I just thought it was the end. I couldn't believe it. And uh, the plane was dropping and it went, felt like it went dark and then it just made this cracking sound and then just went perfectly normal again. And yeah, Richie was on the plane up the front and I've spoke to him about it since and he was thought we were going to die and I was adamant and that changed my life forever. Like That was still only... I think that was 2011 so that was early on i went till to the 2016 so it was mid middle of my career and i had to fly just terrified and i'm still bad now just completely go to water when turbulence hits <laughs> sponsorships um you started really on your qs without a big you know a lot of support but as you sort of developed and start to really find your way you got some solid backing a eh? and you've and i will say like as you were very smart with your money and you bought property and did everything right how important you know for your future was those kind of deals that you made with say insight reef and those companies i was always reasonably lucky yeah i never had a manager whether i would have made more money with a manager i don't know i didn't have crazily incentivized deals so maybe i should have had a manager to get those sort of things in place but i was very happy with with what i received um from sponsorship so you know, at the end of the day, I probably would have got a bit more money, but probably paid that to a manager anyway. And then managers can rub companies up the wrong way and it makes a bad relationship. So I was happy with how it went. Their insight was unbelievable. They were a great company and I uh, had a lot of good friends, still got friends and still ride for um, Mel and Drew Downs that have um, uh, Channel Islands and Insight. That's a relationship that I'll cherish because they looked after me so much and they were part of the Insight clothing when it was going and those first few years on tour were unbelievable to be able to do their ad campaigns and all that sort of stuff with them it was they were kind of cutting edge and leading the way for brands there's no doubt about it through that period of the, their advertising campaigns 
so that was that was a great years and then then my good mate Heath Walker got me over to Reef kind of in that back half of my career and that was really cool too. They were a great company and we did some cool trips and they looked after me after the tour life so I was really lucky in that respect to land some good companies. Looking back now for a young surfer coming through, you know, some guys go through their whole career competing at the highest level and they end up with nothing. It's, it's important that you, you know, you consolidate what you're earning as a professional surfer and putting it into something for the future, do you agree? Yeah, definitely. You, I mean, I look back now and there's definitely a rock starish period that you go through where you'll spend money on, on silly things. And I remember just getting grumpy when you lose a heat and instead of staying for two days and flying home on your flight, you fly home that day, that Arvo, because you're pissed off and it costs you $800. Like, I'd love that $800 right now. <laughs> but... um that's just what happens when you're at that level and you're getting paid pretty good and you just do dumb dumb shit but um you got to be smart i finished the tour without many skills other than being able to get a tube or kind of do a backhand rio so i've been doing enough building and stuff like that that i'm actually in the building industry at the moment and i'm enjoying it but whether i want to do it forever i don't know um i'm only just a year out of being unsponsored from surfing so yeah, it's all it's all new for me still. Um, I definitely miss not being able to drop the hat and go surfing whenever and get f- basically free money to go do something you love, surfing. It's the best job in the world. I say that to people. I've had the best job and the second best job. The best job's probably been a free surfer, which I got paid at the end of my career, but the second best job's been a competitive surfer. So I've had the two best in my eyes. I don't, yeah, I'm pretty lucky. We spoke about that yesterday at breakfast about, you know, a lot of, you just don't think what the hell are you going to do, you know, after your career finishes? Yeah, a lot of guys. I mean, I just didn't want to be in the industry at all. I was done with it. And I still think it's a pretty weird industry right now, to be honest. A lot of people doing a lot of weird stuff to try and get famous on Instagram and social media and that's pretty lame. But I was there. I had to promote companies on Instagram and I've done it so I can kind of get it. But the length some young guys are going to to kind of get attention is pretty lame plus the mystery of surfing is completely gone you kind of know where every spot is bar a few that feeling i used to have waiting for a rip curl search vid to come out was the best feeling ever when i was growing up now everything's just in, in your hand in your pocket as soon as it happens um it's the way of the world i just wish people got to experience just for a minute that feeling that i had being a young surfer and the mysteriousness of surfing was pretty cool um, trying to read a map and find the waves. It was really, really good way to, to, to grow up. Do you watch, do you watch much of the tour? I'm getting old, maybe. <laughs> do you watch much of the tour these I, days? I like the, yeah, I like watching the comps. I like, um, yeah, I like the surfing, the calibre of surfing on there and what they're doing, you know. The guys at the top level, they're filming video parts in a heat now, which is pretty incredible. There's still guys out there trying to do that stuff in the course of a year to film a clip, whereas, you know, Julian and those guys do tricks and that, in a heat under pressure in 30 minutes or with 10 seconds to go they'll do something that someone's tried to film and produce for six months and that just can't be paralleled it's incredible so i like watching that but some of the attitudes and the caliber of person personalities on there is really lame <laughs> so i just laugh at it well i've loved sitting down and have a chat with you today mate and um you know i've known you since you were very very young proud of all you've achieved and uh I've just been blessed to have you as one of my better mates and, you know, I thank you for having to deal with all my crap over the years. So <laughs> thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah, it was a good ride. It's been fun. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks, Ots.
the Hennessy Files podcast series, proudly presented by Aloha Surf Man. Thanks for listening and don't forget to check out next week's episode.